The short-nosed sturgeon has made a strong comeback in the Hudson River, and for the first time in some 200 years, a beaver was recently spotted in the Bronx River. What does that say about the health of New York City's waterways? And are they just as welcoming for swimmers and kayakers? Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, we'll wade into issues facing New York City's waterways, from the Bronx River to the Gowanus Canal. Right now, if you splash yourself with a little water, uh, you know, your hand isn't going to dissolve or anything. Also today, waterways have inspired poets and writers for generations. Coming up, a Bronx-born New Yorican poet shares his work. I wanted to ride that river. I wanted to chase my dreams starting at this river's mouth, navigating new turns of life, waving to people on shore, making my world smaller. Glad you're with us for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. For more than 30 years, the Clean Water Act has been helping to breathe new life into the nation's polluted waterways. The law and other efforts have gone a long way to rid the Bronx River of toxic chemicals and plain old junk, like abandoned cars and rubber tires. The Bronx River Alliance is among the groups that's been involved with the cleanup. I met up with the group's chairman along the river in the Bronx. My name is Dart Westfall. I'm the chair of the Bronx River Alliance, and my job for work is president of Mashaloo Preservation Corporation. We're standing on the Burke Bridge in the Bronx River Forest in Bronx Park, looking at the Bronx River. Absolutely beautiful here. Tell me about this river as far as its history and how it's been used through the years. A hundred years ago, the Bronx was an open sewer, and the original Bronx River Parkway was built to fix that to create a uh, sewer system that would pull some of that sewage out of the Bronx River and create a combination park and parkway for people to enjoy. In the 1940s, a bigger Bronx River Parkway was built in the Bronx, and that caused some problems for, for the river. And the parkway idea, the park with a roadway and the beautiful river and the greenway, was never extended south of the Bronx Zoo into what today is the South Bronx. How long does this river extend, and where does it originate? Well, it's 18 miles altogether, and there's about 8 miles in the city of New York. It begins just at the Kensico Dam. The Kensico Reservoir was originally the Bronx River Reservoir, and it was dammed up to uh, create a water source for New York City. It eventually became the receiving water for about 90% of New York City's drinking water. Has the river ever been used for transportation? Oh, not for a long time. The, this much of it. it. There are waterfalls maybe four or five miles up from the mouth, but the, the estuary part, the part that the tide influences, has been, is still used for transportation. There's still, it's still possible to, to bring things up the river, mostly, uh, mostly commercial. There were fishing boats on the river until the 1980s. There was still a fishing fleet at Westchester Avenue. The river is in an interesting position, and we just heard a Metro North train go roaring by. We're really sandwiched in between the parkway and the train tracks. Well, that happens a lot with the rivers of New York City. They are the right way to go because the water finds the easiest, the the slope to take that keeps you at the lowest point. And so they've been followed by people forever um, as a way to get someplace. Walking along the side of the river becomes the trail, eventually becomes the place where the railroad companies decide the railroad ought to go, becomes the place the engineers decide the highways ought to go. And before you turn around, all of the water corridors in New York City and lots of other places 
are rimmed, blocked, covered with highways. Sometimes the rivers even get covered over completely and no one really even knows that they're there or realizes they're there because all they see is the highway and the railroad and the industry that grows up around those transportation sites. So that meant losing public access. Yes, there's lots of places in the Bronx in particular where there isn't any public access. The Harlem River has a state park and a couple of other tiny places where people can get to the water, but the vast majority of the waterfront of the Harlem River is inaccessible to anybody but the folks sitting on the railroad train looking out at it. What kind of life forms does this river support? A lot more than people would think. I think the arrival of Jose the Beaver a week or two ago was startling to a lot of people, but to many of us Things coming back to the Bronx is an old story, even though seeing a beaver was fairly new. There are many kinds of fish, species of fish, in this river, both in the tidal, brackish section and the freshwater section. There are muskrats out here. People have seen turkey I never have. People have seen coyotes around here. There's all kinds of birds and a fair number of, of mammals and all sorts of different kinds of wildlife in the river. You mentioned the beaver. It was the first time that a beaver was spotted in the river in some 200 years. And the reason that was significant was because this river has long been polluted. Not only has the river been polluted, and that's certainly true, but the area around it has not been hospitable to living things because the trees had all been cut down, the highways got built, the railroads got built. So creating a place where a beaver would want to live, having the corridor up and down the river have water that's clean enough and land on the side that's hospitable enough for a beaver to live in is a wonderful symbol of everything else that's gone on in the Bronx River and other waterways in the city. How close are we, do you think? I think we're close. We're not decades, but years away, because there is one combined sewer overflow, and I'll talk about what that means, but there is one combined sewer overflow that, that makes the continues to make the water dirty. But if all of the people north of the city line do what they agreed to do, the water in this freshwater part will be clean enough to swim in, which means if you go boating and somebody slaps their paddle and it goes in your mouth or your ear or you fall in, you're not going to get sick. So right now, though, you don't want that to happen? Right now, don't put your head under. That's my mother would say when I swim in the dirty Saddle River of New Jersey. But you, because you don't know if you have a cut or something that could get infected, you don't really want that water in it. Because on a bad day in the summer, when the bacteria levels are high, the water's not clean enough to be in. How bad was it at its worst? Well, at its worst, as I say, I mean, it was an open sewer. I mean, all the stuff flowed right into the river. You could, you wouldn't believe the stuff that you could see in the river. And this is something that was true, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. Things have been cleaned up slowly ever since then. I mean, the Clean Water Act was 1972, so that's more than 30 years of people doing this kind of work. Lots of groups have worked along the river over the years. The people in charge of sewage have done things to make it better over the years. All those old toilets, got most of them, got reconnected to a sewer system somewhere. The remaining big problem for all the waterways, not just the Bronx River, is that New York City and other places have combined sewer systems. And that means that when it rains, the drains in the street go into the same pipes as the waste from your house. So when it rains a lot, the sewer system and the sewage treatment plants that clean up the water can't handle all that water, and all of it overflows. The part that can't fit in the sewage treatment plant overflows. And that happens about once a week in New York City. In all the water bodies, wherever you live, that's what's going on. The weather is starting to warm up. What kinds of recreation does the river afford today? 
Well, the goal of the Bronx River Alliance is to create a greenway that runs from the city line to Soundview Park, and it's more than half finished. We're standing right in front of the Bronx River Greenway, a biking and pedestrian path that would take one from Mashaloo Parkway and Pelham Bay, Pelham Parkway, um, up to about 233rd Street along playgrounds and exercise equipment that's out in the street. And there are ball fields and there are playgrounds and there are basketball courts and there are places where people play cricket all up and down the Bronx River. And you can take a canoe or a kayak out if you want. Yes, you can. It, the Parks Department likes people to get permits for that and you can get in touch with the Bronx River Alliance at bronxriver.org and find out how you can do that. There are guided trips about every week in the season. A thousand people were out on the river canoeing last year. Dart, thanks so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Dart Westfall is the chairman of the Bronx River Alliance. The group is online at bronxriver.org. Bronx-born New Yorican poet Fish Vargas grew up six blocks from the Bronx River. He says when he was a kid, the river fascinated him. So perhaps it's no surprise that he's written about it. Fish recently dropped by our studios to share one of his poems. Where the Bronx Queen rides. Back in the late 70s to the early 80s, I remember visiting my uncle on Colgate Avenue right off Westchester in the Soundview section of the Bronx. My father drove a 1969 Chrysler that resembled a yellow submarine, hence the burst of the song in my eyes. Getting to Colgate was complicated, but I remember passing the bridge under the Whitlock Avenue 6 train. The train never impressed me. Crossing over a bridge and seeing a boat on the river always brought high-pitched yells from my then younger body. I've always imagined the far-off distances this boat would travel when it wasn't there. The very thought of this river being the connection to the world. My father promised me once that he would take me on this boat, on this river, in this ghetto. Until this day, I hold him to a promise that he never filled. Not an accusation against my dad, but a blame on the river that swaddled this boat. When one day, my father told me the old boat sunk in the Bronx River and we would never have a chance to ride it. When I look back at that boat waiting for old men with fishing lines, fathers with their children, old sea captains that smell like old fish, the green stains of the river painting the sides of the boat a darker green, discarded tires thrown about the hillside, the concrete plant plain backdrop against the raised L, it was all my land far away. I wanted to ride that river. I wanted to chase my dreams starting at this river's mouth, navigating new turns of life, waving to people on shore, making my world smaller, experiencing life from the start, when nothing mattered and nothing was better, where in my young mind nothing was impossible. The Bronx River was a gateway to the Nile. I could see the Sphinx and the pyramids of Egypt. This river fed the Mississippi and we rode side by side by the first steamship an odd race of a Bronx fishing trolley on a steamship with thousands of gamblers in funny hats. This river washed out to sea and I could cross to China on pristine, calm waters. The sunsets burning holes in the water, this river's mouth kissing the sun. Fish Vargas is a Bronx-born New Yorican poet. You're listening to Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. 
In a minute, we'll continue navigating our local waterways with a look at a species that has come back, all the way from the endangered list. Hudson isn't a river? It is in the Catskills, but once it gets to Manhattan, it's a tidal estuary. Because it's deeper than the body of water it flows into. Yeah. Some of you may recognize that clip from TV's The West Wing. And the president, played by Martin Sheen, is right. The Hudson has tidal characteristics as far north as Troy, 150 miles from New York City. In a 24-hour period, the Hudson Estuary sees about two high tides and two low tides. In general, as the tide rises, the flow of the Hudson moves north towards Troy. When the tide drops, the Hudson ebbs towards New York City and the Atlantic Ocean. Fascinating. As with other New York waterways, the Hudson suffered greatly from the lack of environmental controls throughout much of the last 100 years. Through the 1960s, factory runoff and raw sewage polluted the waters of New York's most famous river, decimating native species and scaring away swimmers and boaters. But thanks to the work of environmental groups and some key legislation, the Hudson has made a remarkable recovery, as has one of its most notable inhabitants. With us now is Mark Bain. Mark is an associate professor of natural resources at Cornell University. Mark, thanks for joining us. Hello. Mark is somewhat of an expert on the short-nosed sturgeon, which calls the Hudson River home. If you don't know what that is, well, it's a fish. Mark, describe this fish for us. They grow to about three feet long, and they live in the deep channel waters of the Hudson River. They Some people say they look like a dinosaur fish because they have skin and then bony plates. And they're one of about 15 different species of sturgeon in the world. So we can find this fish off the coast of New York City. Almost all of them stay in the river from a battery up. They like freshwater and mixed freshwater saltwater. They're not really a marine fish, but sometimes they wander out. What have been the biggest threats to this fish in recent years? In recent years, we don't see that there is any threats to uh, this species. Um, It's been on the U.S. endangered species list, so that means it's protected from handling, capture, harassment by people. Its habitat gets extra scrutiny by the federal government and the state uh, environmental agencies. Was there a time, though, when this fish wasn't doing so well in the Hudson? In our long past, from about 1880 through the beginning of the 1900s, it was being caught in large numbers by a very active sturgeon fishery in the Hudson River uh, centered on at Hyde Park. So fishing and just being caught and removed, killed, was a big problem. Water quality is another issue that was a real trouble for short-nosed sturgeon. They spawn around Albany, and before modern sewage treatment plants were built, that part of the river had low oxygen levels uh, frequently. And then construction, dredging, other activities at places where the short-nosed sturgeon uh, was found in high concentrations uh, was probably also a a concern and an impact on the fish. What about PCB contamination? General Electric dumped a lot of PCBs into the Hudson, specifically the upper Hudson. Did that impact the sturgeon? It could have. This is uh, 
something we really don't know uh, well, what are the impacts of contaminants on this species. But right now the fish is thriving in the Hudson, as you say. It is thriving and it's spawning very close to the General Electric site on the upper, upper Hudson because it, its spawning grounds are between Troy and Albany in the very upper end of the tidal Hudson River. And uh, we have very, very clear evidence that the population has grown uh, well in the last uh, three, three decades or so. How rare is it to see the recovery of an endangered fish? That's actually unprecedented. We, we have no cases that have been documented and shown clearly yet of a recovery of an endangered uh, fish in the United States. And as far as in the world, I, I don't know of any other cases either where we have fish that were truly imperiled and in, close to extinction uh, bouncing back to where they're abundant. Mark, what would you say the moral of the story is? Recovery of endangered species will often take patience. This fish was on the original Endangered Species Act, became protected by federal legislation in 1968. So it's been in a hands-off situation for 30 years, and it took that amount of time for it to reach a safe level. So patience is, is one thing. Another is that we can recover endangered species in the midst of people. The Hudson River has people all around it. Um, it's you know, in the New York City metropolitan area. So we don't have to think of protecting um, species as always requiring marine reserves or national parks or that kind of uh, approach. Mark Bain is an associate professor of natural resources at Cornell University. Mark, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Joining us now on the phone is John Waldman. He's a professor of biology at the City University of New York. He's also the author of Heartbeats in the Muck, the History, Sea Life, and Environment of New York Harbor. John, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, thank you. For those who may be unfamiliar with the city's geography, where exactly is New York Harbor? Well, it's been inconsistently defined. Uh, people tend to think of it as the upper bay, what you would see from the battery looking out over the railing. But in fact, it's much broader. And nowadays, we tend to think of it as everywhere from Raritan Bay and the lower bay, south of the Verrazano Narrows, uh, all the way through the upper bay, Newark Bay, the Arthur Kill, the East River, the lower Hudson. Uh, it's that whole complex of, of waterways that bathe the roughly 700 miles of shoreline we have around New York City. So size-wise, it's pretty big. Yeah. You know, New York City is a, a city of water. We It's, it's made up of... Uh, well, four counties are either islands or parts of islands, and uh, it is at a very aquatic place, although we tend not to think of it that way. How has the harbor been used through the years? Well, early on it was used as a, a food resource in the colonial times and uh, transportation network. Uh, later on it was used, unfortunately, as a uh, place to dump the waste from industry and also sewage, and uh, that had a devastating effect on the ecology so that we lost uh, many of our fish populations and other creatures. And it's been coming back slowly, and we're seeing, we've seen many returns of, of these, uh, these creatures and, and hopeful signs. And now it's a real mixed use. You know, it, people are rediscovering the uh, harbor's waters as a place to kayak and, and fish and, and use in recreational terms, but there are still places um, around its boundaries that are compromised by industry and, and uh, habitat degradation and so on. So it, it, it's coming back, but uh, it, it's quite a mixed-use scenario. And... Uh, 
It's also where we uh, dispose of some of our sewage, but we do it much better these days. Uh, nowadays, the sewage is treated, but we occasionally have these overflows when we have heavy rains where the sewage goes back into the harbor untreated. So has sewage been the biggest source of pollution, or have there been other polluters? Well, there's been, all the, uh, there's been a huge suite of industrial chemicals, and really the limiting factor for using the resources. You really can't eat many fish and shellfish from the harbor, mainly because of the PCBs. But in terms of its uh, long-term degradation and effects, I would say sewage was the primary problem because unlike these chemicals, which can uh, be contained within a, a fish or a shellfish and not be fatal and could have sublethal effects but not be fatal, if you don't have uh, water with high enough oxygen levels, these species can't live. And sewage, when it degrades in place, uses up the available oxygen and there were portions of the harbor during the worst periods of the early 1900s that were essentially biological deserts. Uh, in doing my research in the book, I found accounts of sewage sludge in some places that were 10 feet thick. So imagine trying to be an oyster with 10 feet of sludge over your head. Taking that into account, I would imagine you wouldn't want to swim in the harbor. Well, nowadays you can. Uh, you wouldn't want to do it after heavy rain when some of these combined sewer overflows are discharging raw sewage. But there are days when the water quality is, is pretty good. And people, I know people who jump off some of the uh, west side piers and emerge, emerge unscathed and, and happy to have uh, been refreshed in our harbor waters. Do you think most New Yorkers have that impression of the harbor, though, of jumping in? No, I think there's a real lag in perceptions. I still meet very intelligent people who, who say to me, you mean there are fish in the Hudson? And the Hudson has over 200 species of fish in it, and probably... Millions in total, if you counted up all the individuals, and, and they asked that question. And it's just remarkable to me that they could be asking that, that question in, in this day and age. To what can we attribute the turnaround, the fact that the harbor has gotten cleaner? I attribute much of it to the Clean Water Act of 1972. This was a terrific piece of legislation that not only helped turn around the conditions in this harbor, but harbors and waterways all around this country, a vital piece of legislation. It uh, provided money and standards to raise water quality, and we saw many urban renaissances of water quality throughout this country after 1972. In fact, uh, 1974 is when we first started seeing the harbor herons come back to the harbor. The harbor herons are these, uh, it's a catch-all term for about seven species of egrets and ibis and, and uh, herons that are these large wading birds you see alongside uh, highways, you know, looking to catch fish, and uh, they weren't here for most of the 1900s. And they came back along with many uh, fish species, and we're now even seeing things like sea turtles and, and, and seals and uh, other creatures in the harbor we didn't see before. What would you say has been the most surprising find? Uh, I think to me it's been just how uh, if you give the system a chance, it will recover. You know, I think that it, it sustained tremendous uh, damage in terms of pollution and sewage through uh, the late 1800s through most of the 1900s, and it was viewed as this wasteland almost beyond hope. And then when you gave the, the, chance, uh, the system a chance to respire by, by uh, improving the water quality of the Clean Water Act and taking the sewage sludge away, it just rebounded so quickly that uh, I think there's a lesson there that we shouldn't give up hope on, on damaged systems, that you have to give them a chance. John Waldman, your book is Heartbeats in the Muck, The History, Sea Life, and Environment of New York Harbor. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. One of the many waterways that connects to the New York Harbor is the Gowanus Canal. It's likely you've heard the name Gowanus before. You've probably heard mention of the Gowanus Expressway on the morning traffic report, or you may have driven on one of the many bridges that cross the canal in the Red Hook neighborhood of South Brooklyn. 
But have you ever stopped to look at the Two Mile Canal itself? Not many people do. In its early years, during the 1860s, the Gowanus was a bustling hub for Brooklyn's maritime industry, lined with mills and factories. By the end of the First World War, the Gowanus was the country's busiest commercial canal, but likely its most polluted. Over time, as the shipping industry deteriorated, so too did the state of the canal. By mid-century, traffic on the canal slowed to a trickle, and the area was virtually abandoned. During rainy days, raw sewage would flow freely into the canal, and garbage piled up all along the concrete embankments. Only recently has attention returned to the Gowanus. Slowly but surely, the neighborhoods surrounding the waterway are regaining residence, and some are speaking up on behalf of their local waterway. One group of advocates even spreads the message by leading canoe trips. We tagged along with Bill Duke, one of the so-called Gowanus dredgers, for a little urban boating. Well, I'm Bill Duke, and uh, I'm with the Gowanus Dredgers, which is an educational and recreational nonprofit uh, with the mission of uh, getting people out on the water, enjoying our great estuary here in Brooklyn. Right now, we're about to go under the Third Street Bridge, and uh, we have a beautiful sunny day here. Uh, First day of spring, vernal equinox. On the left, uh, there are, uh, it's a a parking lot with a lot of buses and and, uh, cranes and industrial equipment. And on the right, uh, there's some loft buildings that now are looking, showing signs of being more residential. I'm not sure people, people are living in there, but, uh, you do, you, look, you see there are some, some curtains on the windows. <laughs> There's some wild, wildlife in here. This is uh, 2nd Street, uh, part of the canal, and I o- often see a snowy grat in there. All the shorebirds are in here. Uh, right now, crabs are coming back. There are oysters in the, in the canal. I wouldn't want to eat them, but... Uh, the canal is getting getting more oxygenated and cleaner. I didn't know it years ago when they called it Lavender Lake, and it was supposed to be just just horrendous. Uh, but right now, if you splash yourself with a little water, uh, you know your hand isn't going to dissolve or anything. Uh, I, I would wash your hands before you go eat a bagel after canoeing. So. It gets really bad right after a, um, a rainstorm. Combined sewage overflows, CSOs come out, and uh, there's a noticeable smell of, of sewage. There's, sometimes they're floating dead rats, which can you know, freak people out a little bit. And uh, what we call whitefish, which are you know, floating condoms in the water, which are you know, not really attractive to canoe through. But uh, that's... That's that's part of the part of the experience, I guess. I'd like to see more residential areas. Uh, I'd also like to see a lot more public access in the way of parks and greenways for the public to be able to come and enjoy enjoy the canal, canoeing, uh, boating, sitting by the water, uh, using it the same way they use parks. Heading now uh, 
we're uh, almost to the Hamilton Street uh, bridge and then we'll be going under the Gowanus Ex Expressway. We are heading west towards the mouth uh, of the canal, Gowanus Bay, New York Harbor, and then if we just kept going straight, it would hit, hit Bayonne. <laughs> so. Dredgers come from all, you know, all walks of life. A lot of people are doing it just for the experience because it's novel. And then some people do it for the exercise and the enjoyment and just being out, out on the water. That's, that's, that's why I do it. You don't have to get in a car. It is closer. You uh, don't have to buy a Metro North ticket. You can get here on the subway. Uh, it's, it's part of the city. And uh, in many ways, the... Uh, the, the view is more interesting than just straight nature. It's, it's an area of transition. It's kind of like Coney Island. It's an area of transition between the natural world and the man-made world, between the water and the land. Um, and areas of transition like Coney Island or the Gowanus Canal, to me, are very poetic. That's Bill Duke of the Gowanus Dredgers. If you want to take to the high seas and experience the finest boating South Brooklyn has to offer, visit Gowanus Canal. That's gowanuscanal.org. And that brings us to the end of this week's Cityscape. Spring has sprung, dare we say. The weather's turned, so there's no better time to explore some of New York's waterways. Maybe we've even given you some ideas. I'm lost on the river. Remember, if you happen to be out fishing or boating or scuba diving and you miss a cityscape, you can always find past shows and our podcast at WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend.